This is Car Expert. Well, I remember you saying the ride in the Model Y was untenable. So that's one thing the MG does do quite well. To say that Suzuki has its work cut out for it with this pricing would be the understatement of the century. Perhaps this is Tesla's way of managing the narrative around the full self-driving issues that they've been having and the failures that system has exhibited. Paul Marrick, hello, stranger. Hello, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. And hello, James Wong. Hello, hello. Great to see another Drive Against Depression event coming up once again. For those who don't know what it is, what exactly is it? Uh, So Drive Against Depression is a really cool charity that um, Paul and I have been involved with for a long time. Um, It's the the mission is to, you know, open up the conversation and normalize discussion about mental health through the shared love of cars and driving. So um, in addition to having semi-regular drive days and community events, um, the charity is establishing a mental health network. So there's lots of practitioners that are getting on board and other professionals that can, you know, be a, a resource for people who might need help because you know it's a it's still a topic that perhaps is not as easy to talk about as some others so being able to say that you're not okay and reach out to somebody or you know coming to an event and meeting somebody that you haven't met before that you can just have a really um, open discussion about things that might be affecting you so it's it's something that I've really have been able to relate to and get behind over a, a number of years now um, we haven't had many events in the past year because the the founders of the charity have moved into state so we're really lucky to have them back in Melbourne for a little bit and they're planning to do a, an event this weekend so if you're around on Sunday and feel like going for a cruise and meeting uh, myself and some of the other members of the of the charity feel free to come along you can register on their website at um, drive against depression .com.au. I think that's the, the URL, but otherwise just Google it. Um, yeah, so really excited to have another event and um, get to see everybody again. So um, definitely a cause to get behind if both mm. of those things um, matter to you. It's actually perfect timing coming off the back of AUAK Day too. It's still fresh in everybody's minds. Do you know where um, this event's driving to, Jawa? Yeah, so it's starting in um, Manor Lakes, which is like Werribee Way in Western Melbourne, um, and then going to Wyndham Harbour. So it's a little bit further out than some of the recent ones we've done, but hopefully it's a, it, because it's a new route that we haven't done before, we might see some new scenery and some new roads. So definitely um, an exciting event um, this Sunday morning. Is it um, for new and old cars as well? Yeah, it's open to everybody. You don't have to be driving a performance vehicle to come along. You just have to want to, you know, come along for the ride, regardless of whether you're driving a Kluger, Supra, a Tesla Model Y. I don't know why you would want a Tesla Model Y, but, you know, (laughs) I see Paul grimacing in the background. Um, But, yeah, it's it's open to everybody, uh, all ages. It's it's, it's just meant to be a safe, fun environment for everybody to come join and, and, you know, um, support the the cause. So don't feel like because you don't have something that that you feel like you can show off means that you can't come along. Definitely it's open to everybody. Yeah, um, it's it's a fantastic cause. So um, yeah, make sure you get behind it and support it. And also, don't drive like a dickhead because that's what <laughs> happens at car cruises. People rock up and and go, oh yeah, I'm just going to watch this, and then they end up doing something dumb. So just enjoy yourself, relax, and take it easy. Or just buy a slow car like me. Then you don't you can't hoon at all. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk this week's car news now with Jack Quick. Hello, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now we're going to give, once again, another update on the BYD Atto 3 standard range and this time we know when it's coming to Australia. Yes, it's another part of the never-ending saga. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got some more news coming up from BYD. Uh, myself and Scott recently attended a, a media event last week, which was quite exciting. We got to see uh, the first Atto 3 in Victoria be delivered to a customer, uh, which was really cool. It kind of followed on from a customer in Queensland getting the first in Australia. So you might be starting to see some Atto 3s around, around the streets sometime soon. But this story um, in particular is kind of focusing on what is coming next. Uh, 
So um, as I mentioned, there's a whole heap of BYD, uh, you might mention many, there's a whole heap of new BYD cars coming. And um, the first deliveries of Auto 3 have already started. And um, But the vehicles that are un- in Australia right now are only the extended range, top of the range model. And um, then there's another model called the standard range that hasn't come to Australia yet. That's the entry-level cheaper model. Um, but we got some some insight saying that production of this standard range Atto 3 is going to be starting in November. And um, so should be seeing it before the end of the year. And um, in regard to other models beyond the Atto 3, which is the SUV, we're going to be seeing a Tesla Model 3 rivaling a sedan called the Seal. It's, I'll mention a little bit in later. That's probably not what it's going to be called. So we're going to be seeing a car called the, the sedan. And then there's also going to be a hatchback, which is referred to as the Dolphin or EA1. Uh, it's a small little hatchback. They're going to be seeing two other models um, from BYD coming to Australia. They're going to be going on sale either late this year or early next year um, ahead of delivery starting in 2023 and um, as I mentioned just before both the the seal and dolphin will most likely have different names they could kind of follow the convention of the atto so it could be like the atto 2 and the atto 4 but that's not confirmed yet um, Luke Todd the managing director of EV direct which is the local distributor uh, distributor goodness me of BYD um, couldn't confirm what the naming is going to be at this stage stage. Um, BYD is kind of booming at the moment. I can't stop talking about it on the podcast every time I'm on. Probably sick of me talking about it, but um, I got some insights saying um, it currently has uh, around 4,500 orders and also has a capacity to build 3,000 cars a month. So we could be seeing a lot of them very, very soon. And a few other quick things as well is that um, BYD is hoping to was putting its sales data into VFACTS either in uh, September or October. Um, we could be seeing an ANCAP safety rating of the Atto 3 very soon uh, by the end of 2022 at the least. And uh, also working on this really strange uh, green kilometre scheme. Uh, if you want to read more about it, uh, look up on the website. But it's all about rewarding customers for their investment. It's all very... Um, early stages from what I can understand at this stage. But I, from what I gathered when we were talking about it with uh, Luke Todd, it was very much like giving people, giving uh, BYD customers an incentive and thanking them for sticking with and getting the car. <laughs> and um, and this kind of all follows. There's been, as I've talked about on a few other podcasts, um, that they've had a few issues with the servicing and warranty. Um, so you might have heard that the came out with the, an original uh, service intervals that were very steep. And then they kind of backtracked and intru- backtracked and uh, introduced a new uh, lower mileage option, which was still a little bit costly when you think of an electric vehicle, in my eyes at least anyway. Not really that much going on in an electric car. You shouldn't really need to service it that often or have that much, have it cost that much. But then also with the warranty, the the warranty kind of drops off really quickly. It's not all inclusive for the whole period of time. And um, Luke Todd was very standing firm on that on that in particular saying that I want to use better words, but kind of it is what it is. But um, I'd like to know, guys, um, do you think any of the um, upcoming BYD cars tickle your fancy? <laughs> Mm. Um, well, I, I found um, I found the names of them awfully interesting. I, I really don't understand, even in their local market, how those names make any sense at all. So, um, hopefully, they do change Dolphin and Seal for the Australian market, so they don't sound so totally goofy. Um, Look, we, we are going to drive, uh, well, have our own car to drive very soon. They've been pretty slow delivering us a car to, to actually test out ourselves. It does look incredibly quirky and and I think ultimately that's going to be um, the thing they need to address the most. And when you think about an average punter, they just want a car that gets them from A to B. They don't need something that looks a little strange on the inside. So um, I think that's going to be ultimately where it comes undone for them. It's good to see they have so much capacity and, and typically what we've found with other Chinese brands is they're quite receptive to feedback. Um, and it means that if we do deliver them feedback or customers deliver them feedback about things they like or don't like about the vehicle, it's easy enough for them to to make that change at a much, much more rapid pace than you would see in any other car brand. So, yeah, let's see how it goes, I guess. 
Yeah, I think I've said it probably a couple of times now that I find their their positioning, everything's obviously very competitive and the brand itself is very interesting. The products look good. Um, you know, they seem to offer interesting colors and interior material choices and things like that. I think the biggest um, determining factor on how they'll succeed in the mid to long term will probably be based on this initial allocation of cars. Like we've already had this drama with their ownership and servicing program with, around the pricing and the communication around the, the um, terms and conditions of the warranty. So I think if they can get it sorted within this first couple of months and, you know, make people really happy with their purchase and, you know, that people start talking and saying how great all their products are, you know, I think it'll bode really well for them because, you know, uh, to have a car, an, a fully electric vehicle that cheap, that's a decent size, you know, looks good and whatever. I think they've they've really got an opportunity here to to change things up. And at the moment, you've only really got MG fighting in that space. You might have Great Wall or GWM coming next year with the Aura products, which will likely be in sort of the same ballpark price wise. But you know, it's if you can establish yourself quickly and become a go to name. I think the, the, the opportunities are endless for them. They just have to get it right. Absolutely. On to the next story now, Jack. New South Wales speed cameras, they're not allowed to hide anymore. <laughs> yes, they have to be seen. <laughs> have Did to it. know when to slow down. <laughs> uh, so, yes, very cheeky in my eyes. But um, uh, speed camera operators in New South Wales uh, now have to follow new rules. Uh, following criticism, their vehicles were being hidden. So you couldn't see that there was a speed camera car there and what couldn't slow down in time or you were being a little bit naughty. <laughs> uh, so these are revised protocols. I mean, the speed camera operators must park uh, 10 to 15 metres from the nearest vehicle. And um, this is all to do with making speed, ca- uh, speed camera signs more visible. Um, following complaints that speed camera vehicles have even been parked uh, in rows of cars or um, obscured by uh, foliage or trees. And um, so when you're going about this now that with these revised protocols that if you're a speaker camera operator, um, you must report back to the operations centre to confirm that their vehicle is parked correctly and kind of follows with these new protocols to make sure that the drivers can see that they're coming and everything's all good. You're not being sneaky by hiding behind a bush, as example. And um, this kind of all follows as well from – I wasn't really familiar with New South Wales uh, laws in particular or protocols, should say because I'm based in Victoria. But um, since April, um, all speed camera uh, speed camera vehicles have to have a special uh, sign warning motorists um, on the roof rack to say that they're um, taking uh, monitoring speed, obviously, with the speed camera. And they have these really cool signs. I say cool. Expensive signs is what I should say. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're special signs that um, electronically raised. Uh, that I saw a picture. They're mounted on the roof rack to let um, motorists know that they're active and they're monitoring your speed. And um, across the fleet of um, cars that the, have these signs now um, that need to be mounted, it costs $2.6 million to implement, which is a lot for a sign in my eyes, an electronic sign. Uh, um, but I wanted to know, guys, what do you think? Is this a bit sneaky or is this something that makes sense? Um, well, I can tell you that $2.6 million for a sign I think is absolute bullshit, but, um, you know, it's a government department. They'll think of any way they possibly can to rip you <laughs> off and rip taxpayers off. Um, the interesting thing with the guidelines is Victoria used to have guidelines as well. And um, back in my distant youth, um, I exposed them for capturing speed going downhill, which was against, oh, and also hiding cars but behind trees, which was against their guidelines. And instead of them actually doing anything about it, um, well, they did do something about it. They removed the guidelines. So all of a sudden, these guidelines, which they said, oh, these are just guidelines, they're not the law, when they kept getting called out on it, they just removed the guidelines. So now in Victoria, it's effectively some internal guideline document that no one can see. Um, So, yeah, it is is the height of dodginess. If um, they actually wanted people to slow down, you would have clearly marked speed camera cars, which in Victoria, for example, they don't, you would have signs before the car 
Anyone that doesn't see the signs and doesn't slow down can get fined. Having a sign on a roof is entirely pointless. You're, you're just dishing out fines for low-level speeding offences. Um, the people that were going to speed anyway are going to get caught and then you catch all the other people that are probably just concentrating on traffic and, you know, just trying to navigate their way through the city. I, I just think it's, yeah, it's completely stupid. And, and it's one of these things now that they earn so much money from speed enforcement. It's it's now just one of those things that will be around for a long time to come because you cannot, especially under these times right now, cannot possibly go without the revenue that it brings in. Are even the, the road tolls lowering? They say, oh, this is to help, to help our uh, decreasing the road toll, but I don't even know if it's lowering each year. Well, the problem with the road toll is it's it's not really a representation of whether the speed cameras are working or not because the road toll naturally comes down by the safety of cars increasing. If the road toll increases, um, you simply have people who are getting in higher speed accidents in cars that are killing themselves. Speed cameras really... Uh, look, I, I think that you do need some level of speed enforcement, but when they focus so much on zero to 10 kilometres an hour, which is where they earn a great deal of their revenue, it shows that it's more about raising revenue rather than actually helping save lives on the roads. If they were quite serious about it, you would actually enact driver training. I mean, that is the the, the easiest by far way to get people safer on the roads. Speed enforcement, especially covert speed enforcement, in my opinion, doesn't really do anything. Keen to hear your opinions on this one, Joe. Well, I think everyone has one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? Because like I am pretty much in agreement with everyone else in that I feel like the focus is in the wrong area. I think that um, pinging someone for being four k's over the limit is not going to save anyone's life. If anything, you, you're potentially distracting people by making them focus so much on their their speedometers that they're not actually focusing on the road ahead, which I'm pretty sure we've seen on a, on a freeway in peak hour that somebody's so worried about the the speed that they've ended up rear-ending someone that's had to slam on the brakes. So, um, you know, given how much money they've invested in a bloody sign, maybe put that money into a, a, a package for driver training or something like that. Surely it, it that would be money better spent educating the youth, educating existing drivers or, you know, improving road infrastructure. Like I... Paul, you can probably attest to this as well. Some of us have driven overseas where they drive much faster all the time and, you know, it's not dangerous. Like our road toll doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be dramatically decreasing. They've played with speed limits and stuff all around the country. Some places you're going 20 or 30 kilometres an hour in the hope that somebody who's silly enough to walk in front of a car, a moving car, might you won't not hurt them. Like it's just all these things where – it's it's almost like busy work. So I, I just think that we need to think of more meaningful ways to, if you, if the purpose is to reduce the road toll, then you know helping people buy safer cars or you know improving infrastructure so that you know pedestrians aren't walking alongside a hundred kilometer an hour speed zones, you know, with a one meter gap or you know more bike lanes to stop cy- cyclists from getting hit and things like that. There are so many different strategies that you can employ, and given the budgets that they're they're doing for signage or you know updating speed camera guidelines, like are you kidding me? Like it's just it's just ridiculous. Okay, Jack, over to the 2023 Toyota Hilux Rogue. We have pricing for this. This is the direct competitor to the Ranger Wildtrak, right? That is exactly right. <laughs> so yes, um, Toyota's now detailed um, this whole new, I say whole new, it's not really that new, a uh, new flagship model uh, for the Hilux that has, I'm doing air quotes, significant mechanical upgrades is what the, the kind of slogan is behind it. And um, so this new uh, Hilux Rogue is going to be arriving in uh, Australian showrooms in October and it's going to cost $70,200 before on roads, which is coincidental. Incidentally, the same price as the pre-update model, which I find really interesting because as I'll get to in just a second, there are a few things that have changed with this model. And um, it's also just um, $10 more expensive <laughs> than the Ford Ranger Wildtrak uh, with the V6 diesel. So $10 more and you can get a, <laughs> get a Hilux Rogue. So um, I'll kind of list all of the, the upgrades and the changes to this model now. Um, so it has a 140 millimeter wider front and rear track and a 20 mil uh, higher ride height. 
has extended front suspension arm and a front stabilizer bar length. Uh, it also has uh, adjusted shock, shock absorber angle and it also has um, a rear damper. The rear dampers have been moved uh, further outwards. And last of all, um, the rear stabilizer bar has been uh, has been added uh, for the first time in a Hilux. All of these are kind of geared towards making the, the Hilux ride a little bit better, both off and on road, make it a bit more comfortable and a bit more manageable, make it wider and more, I suppose, capable off road, giving it a little bit uh, higher ride height. Um, in addition to all of this as well, there are now ventilated rear disc brakes replacing the archaic drum brakes, hey. something that I like have on my Jimny still. It's crazy to think it's in like in a, in a modern dual cab ute. They're only just getting changed now. You do get in the uh, wild track, a uh, range of wild track V6 and, um, a few other different things as well as you get uh, on the outside, you get 18-inch uh, alloy wheels, new a new design, and the most notable change that you'd be able to make outside of these really cool um, wide uh, wide body, that's how I'd describe them, wide body wheel arches and huge mud flaps, which look freaking sick if you haven't already seen an image of it. And um, But all of these changes, uh, I almost want to say mean nothing because – the engine is still the exact same. The outputs are still the same. It's still the 2.8-litre turbo diesel four-cylinder that produces 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres. Um, but hold on just a second. <laughs> and I, there is something still coming that you might have heard about before and um, on if you've read one of the our site with the story. There's a new GR Sport hardcore halo model uh, that's coming to replace the, the previous now defunct um, Rugged X uh, in this, uh, coming in the second half of 2023. That look that sounds very promising. We haven't really heard that much about this uh, GR Sport model yet, but there's heaps of GR Sport models um, in different markets around in, uh, around the world. With some of them varying from just being like a sticker pack, and other than others being like a little bit more power. So I'm really interested to see for that in particular uh, when it comes next year. But I want to know, guys, would you get a Hilux Rogue or a Ranger Wild Track V6? Um, if all that has changed is those few bits and pieces. Uh, I would well and truly get the Ranger. It, it is leaps ahead of the Toyota in terms of technology. Um, the Ford comes with a V6. The Toyota doesn't. Like I just, I couldn't possibly understand outside of disc brakes and some very minor suspension changes how this could materially make this any different to, to drive or, or make it any better than, than it currently is. So that might all change next year when they bring this uh, GR Sport model. And given it's so far away, that kind of tells me that they're probably actually working on something half decent, and I hope that they are because um, the Raptor is just so far ahead of anything that they've got at the moment that, that, that they really need to put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, look, to be honest, I think that the, the even the old Ranger was already pretty much where, if not further than where the existing Hilux generation is now. So the fact that they've gone through a whole new generation with all these, you know, class benchmark upgrades, you know, you've got Ranger and Amarok coming through in the next six months that just blow everything else out of the water. And so, you know, I guess the the one thing perhaps to that will play in the Hilux's favor is that perception around reliability and and you know, solid bulletproof quality or whatever. So people who have got like an SR5 or something and want a little bit more capability will be really persuaded by this, I think. But in terms of like looking at these two products, like like the, like Paul said, that it's hard to go past a, a range of wild track, let alone a Raptor, um, looking at the upgrades that are in this Hilux. So depending on what they do with this GR Sport, because if it's still based on the current generation, they're not going to have a massive powertrain in, improvement, I don't imagine. So we'll just have to wait and see. But this Rogue is sort of like just another one of those additions with a little bit more capability that I think is good for someone who wants a Hilux, but when you look in the in the broader market segment, it's probably not a, a first pick. Mm. And over to our final story now, Paul, I'm sure you'll have a few things to say about this as you wrote it, but we'll get Jack to set it up first. And I'm just going to read basically the headline of the story, which is, is Tesla modifying cars and software specifically for crash testing, Jack? 
Ooh, <laughs> start that one too. It's um, very interesting indeed. Um, so yes, uh, there's a user on uh, Twitter who's claiming that Tesla is modifying vehicle software in cars that are being supplied to uh, crash testing bodies. This all kind of follows um, a five-star um, ANCAP safety rating for the Tesla Model Y, um, very highly praised, got the five-star rating. And so to hear this might be a little bit scary to think if you're almost, if you're ordering one. But I wanted to see, Paul, um, seeing that you followed this up a little bit more, is it a little bit more depth that you'd like to give? Yeah, look, there's actually quite a bit more depth to this. And the reason we haven't, at the time of recording this podcast, written anything else is that I've been liaising with ANCAP, which is the Australian Crash Test Body, and Euro NCAP, which is the European Crash Testing Body. But uh, basically, this uh, user on Twitter has discovered that in uh, new Tesla vehicles, uh, they're, they're basically adding these flags within vehicle firmware to indicate that the car is being crash tested. And we don't know exactly what these flags mean at the moment, but the fact that they're singling out crash laboratories within the software is uh, very interesting. Second to this, though, is this user claims to have a physical computer from a Model X that was crash tested uh, in 2019. And that computer shows that the vehicle was crash tested and tested as part of its safety assist systems with a custom and bespoke firmware that you cannot get on a regular passenger car. And the only way Tesla could have done this is by either modifying the car from the factory or rolling out a software update with or without the knowledge of Euro NCAP prior to the crash test and prior to the AEB testing. Uh, we don't know what is in this software. We don't know how it differs from regular cars. And, you know, based on some of the comments we've seen on, on our story and on Twitter, perhaps this is Tesla's way of managing the narrative around the full self-driving issues that they've been having uh, and the, the sort of failures that system has exhibited. And it also is potentially a sign of um, them trying to adjust the PR on that. So, you know, we're not saying that's the case at the moment. We don't know, but we are digging. And at this stage, it's, there are a lot of questions, not a whole lot of answers. There are also, there's also nobody at Tesla who's willing to talk on the record. So once we do have a comprehensive set of questions that, that I have more information on, I'm going to put them to Elon uh, on Twitter and we'll see if he wants to respond. If he doesn't, I think that there is enough evidence to to suggest that something funny is going on and that the mm -hmm. crash test results should be potentially disregarded until we get to the bottom of it. If, if all this turns out to be true, Paul, what could the implications be? Well, it would be, I guess it's no different to an athlete who has um, – a drug in their system that enhances their performance. So you might have one millionth of that drug. You might have 10,000 times that drug. So it may improve or it may not improve your performance. But the fact that these cars are not representative potentially, the, the allegation is that they're not representative of a car that you can buy off the shelf, says to me that some changes were made for whatever reason. It could be something as insignificant as them wanting to disable a sensor so that it can be crash tested properly. That that might be the, the reason. Who knows? Mm. Um, but even if that was the reason, no other car needs to have that done. So why should they be allowed to modify anything on their cars before a crash test is done? And if that is the case, it, it appears at this stage that no one knows about that. So... Um, if they've done it without people knowing, that also brings up questions. So, yeah, look, it is it is interesting and um, I'll be following this one very closely and uh, I will sort of update any stories on our site with more information once, once we get details from either ANCAP or Euro ANCAP when it comes to the investigation. And you can keep up to date with any other news stories at carexpert.com.au. It's taken some considerable time, but competition is finally starting to get tight when it comes to the EV market. MG is offering Australia's cheapest EV, the ZS EV, and Tony Crawford has driven it. Hello, Croft. G'day, Mandy. So, there we go. <laughs> so starting at 44990 does the 2023 MG ZS EV feel like Australia's cheapest EV? 
No, in short, and uh, forty four nine ninety. That is a drive away price, and um, wow. that is for the entry level. Uh, Excite and the uh, essence, the top spec is forty eight nine ninety drive away. Now it isn't quite the cheapest car in Australia, cheapest EV in Australia. The BYD will uh, carry that flag uh, in some states. Uh, that's the difference. So, whereas uh, MG pricing is a nationwide pricing. So that's the difference there. So they're very very close. Yeah. So how's the range compared to its competitors? The range is uh, up from uh, 263 to 320K. So it is quite – it's a 50, uh, 57K uh, increase in range. So hmm. uh, when you consider the average Australian commutes at 28Ks a day, I think you'll be fine with that range uh, and given the pricing. They do, however, have a larger battery uh, outside of this country – uh, which is 72 kilowatt hour battery. And uh, we will very likely get that. We did ask them that question and they uh, said that they were testing that battery, whatever that means. So, Paul. Tony, I, I was curious. You gave it an incredibly high rating, in fact, higher than the Tesla Model Y, which I thought was um, <laughs> very impressive. Um, what did you like more or what does the MG do that the Tesla doesn't for it to have such a high rating? Yeah, Paul, I remember you saying the ride in the Model Y was untenable. Uh, so that's one thing the MG does do quite well uh, from its predecessor, uh, which was a deplorable car, I might add, that we had in our experience centre, which I loathe to drive. This is a completely different proposition. A new dampers, new springs, new spring ratings seem to have made all the difference here in this car. I drove it with a competitive colleague, so we were madly comparing notes, and um, we all came away with the same conclusion that the uh, body control and ride comfort is uh, far superior uh, in this iteration than it was in the previous iteration. So evidently they had uh, massive numbers of complaints from people. And they've, uh, I'd say, worked exceedingly hard to improve the uh, value proposition of this car and make it so that they don't get so many complaints uh, about the uh, body control lean and and the uh, rather jumpy ride that it had before. But, uh, yeah, we were, we were really, really impressed with this vehicle. It just didn't feel like Australia's cheapest car. It felt like a well-engineered EV. And given the price, 44990 drive away with a whole bunch of kit, and uh, we thought it was the exceptional value. Uh, Croft, speaking of kit, um, electric vehicles are commonly tied to thing, topics like technology and all that kind of thing. And this new MG ZS EV is meant to have an updated infotainment system, which typically for MG is a weak point, as I've experienced not just with the ZS EV, but with other, other vehicles in their lineup. Can you speak a little bit about this new, um, some of the new tech that's in the updated model and whether you feel like it's you know, competitive in today's landscape? Yeah, Wongi, we tried it out, um, both of us, on a number of different, you know, we plugged in in terms of uh, CarPlay, but the uh, standard uh, interface was good, clarity was good. It's one of those glass screen uh, infotainment screens, 10-inch, or 10.1, and, um, yeah, we loved it. Um, Colour clarity was good. Um, it may not be quite so good. It's certainly not as good as a Tesla tablet. There's no, no question there. Um, and they've got a long way to go in that. But again, you're talking about uh, a price point of 44990 versus, uh, Paul would correct me, but the base uh, drive away on a Tesla Model 3 before the, uh, before the exclusions in various states would be 70-odd K. Uh, you do get money back, three grand back off uh, off that price. So, but you're talking about a completely different league of electric vehicle. This is an entry level uh, proposition for people that uh, want to make the switch from combustion to to an EV powertrain. And um, you know, it, as I said, it doesn't feel like a cheap car. They've uh, made some uh, rapid uh, improves in this in this vehicle, and I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised when they get in this vehicle and uh, drive it as we did, and we uh, pushed it quite hard in terms of its body roll because that's what it suffered from uh, with its uh, initial iteration. So this one doesn't do that. It really is quite tightly strung in that regard. So 
We were very happy. Again, we were happy. We hit every pothole you could imagine. And over broken, cracked road, that was good. Uh, it's also got a, a digital instrument display, which is nice and simple. Uh, you can customize it, but you know, unlike the more premium brands, the German brands, which have layer upon layer of information, which uh, is almost impossible to uh, get to the right layer at times, this one is very, very simple and easy to use for, for first-time users. And I think that's important when you're talking about entry into the EV world. Can you actually schedule charging now to take advantage uh, yeah, of off-peak? There's, uh, there's uh, they've got their own proprietary app. Um, I think it's iSmart, and um, it, it is very good. We tried that out on one of their phones, not our phone, but uh, and that seemed to work well. You can uh, you can do what you said then and uh, schedule charging. Um, you can also uh, check, obviously, your levels of uh, charge levels, etc. cetera. Uh, charging... Um, it can take up to, we heard, 80 kilowatt hours, although it's sort of regulated at 50. I don't quite know what that means, but um, uh, that's what it'll accept anyway, and that'll take about 36 minutes for an 80% charge uh, from depletion. And uh, if you want to plug it in, they do sell, uh, which is quite convenient, MG sell uh, 7.4 kilowatt hour Powerwall or an 11 kilowatt hour Powerwall. For the 11, it's about five hour charge. Uh, for the other, it's a eight-hour charge overnight. So either way, you're uh, you know, I think 320 k's is ample for a city-based vehicle. But you could also drive from Sydney to Canberra almost uh, mm-hmm. without stopping. So not so bad. But yeah, let's hope they get in this other um, larger 72 kilowatt-hour battery because that'll give you. I think it's 430 uh, k range uh, on the WLTP cycle. So, Croft, how did the interior quality stack up? Well, uh, we only drove the uh, ex- we only drove the uh, Essence, which is the top spec, which had some uh, leatherette, Mandy. Um, not quite real, but it did feel like Napa leather. Its softness and uh, you know some uh, you know the softness of the of, and the cushioning was quite good. The bolsters were good. Um, yeah, I've, we found it really, really comfortable and quite a bit of room in the back seat. We were quite surprised. Um, uh, I, I remembered from the past uh, with the one we had in the experience center that was quite tight in the back, but uh, no, um, it had ample room. The, my colleague was about 6'1", and uh, he also had ample uh, leg room and headroom, so um, not bad at all. For that regard. Tony, just on the seats, it's a bit like your hair. It sort of looks looks real, but it isn't. <laughs> well, I know you would uh, pull for a few strands and uh, uh, perhaps we can do some stem cells. I'll uh, tell you a bit. Um, my cousin actually does stem cell operations, Paul, so I'll... I, I can tell, Tony. <laughs> Doesn't he also do colonoscopies? Wasn't it your cousin that uh, did that to you? That's his brother. That's it. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, other cousin. It's quite a family. No, same family. Four <laughs> specialists in the one family. How so quite, did we quite get well so off topic? There. I'll get you a discount. He'll do it in China where it's quite legal. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God. All right. Uh, your review, Croft, is live now at carexpert.com.au. And that uh, rating you gave it was oh. 8. Five. Actually, yes, I did. Uh, one thing I did forget, Mandy, is the uh, uh, how it went in terms of straight line uh, speed. Well, it's not a rapid thing as a Tesla is. Uh, it takes all of 8.2 seconds to go from uh, standstill uh, to uh, 100 k's an hour. Now, now, stay with me on this because it didn't feel slow when you, hit, when you uh, whacked it into sport mode. Uh, so if we're talking about the naught to 60, it'd be interesting to uh, get a V-box on that and see what its real value in terms of accelerating away at a set of traffic lights in Sydney or Melbourne um, and hitting 60 Ks. It felt quite rapid in that regard, and there was quite a difference in sport mode from uh, one of the greener modes. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't believe 8.2 seconds is a uh, is a figure that you could hang your hat on because of the fact that, uh, the normal 0 to 60 acceleration is uh, far more rapid than that. So 
uh, we certainly didn't feel like the traffic left us behind. We were still leaping away in the left lane, as you often do in EVs, to uh, get ahead of the traffic, as does a motorbike in that regard. But, yeah, so uh, felt quite punchy, to be honest, around the CBD. We'll have to get Chris Atkinson behind the wheel at some point, Croft. Now, that would be interesting. <laughs> Thanks for your time. No worries, guys. There's been a rather large upgrade to the 2023 Suzuki S-Cross that is well worth talking about, and that's exactly the reason we have Mike Costello joining us now. G'day, Moco. G'day, Mandy and team. How are we all? Very well. Now, for those who don't know, where does the S-Cross sit in the Suzuki range and where is it priced? So the S-Cross sits right at the top of the Suzuki Australia range. It comes in above the Vitara, so it's both Suzuki's biggest and most expensive vehicle, although it is still only classified as a small SUV, so it goes up against things like Mitsubishi ASX, MG ZS, Mazda CX-30, Kia Seltos. I could go on forever. The small SUV segment is so fragmented. But the real story with this car is price. Now, you you kind of hit the nail on the head before when you said it's an update because Suzuki kind of sells this as an all-new S-Cross because it looks entirely different to the old one, completely reskinned design. But it's not an all-new vehicle. It's the same engine, the same chassis, a lot of the same interior aside from the touchscreen. So not a huge amount of changes. Um, And the price is... Well, it's a bit of a talking point. It's certainly what held the car back in the review, and it's safe to say that some of our commenters don't seem all that wrapped about it because the price is up by between $10,000 and $12,500 over the old one. Now, in fairness, the new one is all-wheel drive and the old one was front-wheel drive, but for a a reskin, a new touchscreen and an all-wheel drive system, another ten grand seems like a lot. Forty thousand four hundred and ninety before on road cost for the base car, and forty four four ninety before on road cost for the Prestige, which is about fifty thousand dollars on the road. Now, just very quickly to contextualise that, that means that it is priced at top level higher than a Kia Seltos GT Line all wheel drive. It is about ballpark with a Mazda CX thirty or a Volkswagen T Rock R Line all wheel drive. Um, the Subaru XV all wheel drive kicks off. cheaper than the most basic Suzuki S-Cross. And the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, which is a much bigger vehicle, also starts about five grand cheaper. The Toyota Corolla Cross with all-wheel drive and a hybrid, one of the most anticipated cars in recent times, it is priced in between the base and top spec S-Cross. And just for a bit of a silly sort of side-by-side, a Hyundai Kona N, which is a full-on track-owned proper performance vehicle, that's only five grand more than a top-of-the-range S-Cross. <laughs> so to say that Suzuki has its work cut out for it with this pricing would be the understatement of the century. What are they thinking? <laughs> I honestly don't know, Mandy. It's one of those ones where, I mean, it even makes the Honda HRV seem like good value, and that is not easy to do. Yeah. Um, we, I think we're all very understanding in this day and age, prices of everything have gone up. There's inflation, there's freight, there's COVID, there's all these issues with things. But this price in direct competition to its opposition, irrespective of what Suzuki Australia says, is simply too high. And I can only assume they're leaving plenty of wiggle room for their dealers to haggle and negotiate. Because if you're buying it at that price, honestly, you could do better. What are the the VFACTS figures for the S-Cross? So the S-Cross has been a real niche seller. I couldn't give you the exact figures off the top of my head, but what I can say is it's never really taken off in Australia. And a lot of that's because it's always been quite constrained in supply. It's always come out of the Hungary plant, a bit like the Vitara, and it's a bit harder to get stock out of that. And Suzuki Australia has never really put a hell of a lot of marketing or investment or time into talking about the S-Cross because it's always had other cars that it wanted to focus on. That's different with this updated model, which is going to be the focus of a pretty major advertising campaign that comes out soon. But it's never been remotely a big seller. In fact, Suzuki was kind of talking about this midlife update or significant reskin as its chance to relaunch the car and and actually make people aware of its existence because it's never really had a lot of cut through. Hmm. I don't know about you guys. I've I've always found Suzuki's to be a a little bit fun to drive. Mm. Um, Did you find the same with the S-Cross? Yeah, and so absolutely, and and I don't want people to think that this car doesn't have positive attributes because that's not the case. It does have some positive attributes. It it weighs less than 1,300 kilograms, which is extraordinarily light for a small SUV. I mean, that's 120 kilos lighter than a Corolla. So what that means is 
it doesn't need uh, as much power and torque to get up and move. And it's 103 kilowatt, 220 meter, 1.4 liter turbo engine is actually ample for a car that only weighs that much. It also means that it feels very light and agile on its feet. It's very, very keen for rapid directional changes. The steering is very light, but quite direct. It's got excellent ride quality. It floats over bumps. And that also applies to soft roading. So it's got an on-demand all-wheel drive system that can lock the torque split 50-50 if you want. And the lighter the vehicle, the more easily it can float over soft surfaces and things like that. So the lightness that is inherent to Suzuki's really does uh, manifest in a lot of positive attributes. You also notice perhaps some ways that Suzuki has taken the weight out because the doors feel like they weigh nothing whatsoever and a stiff breeze would close them. And some of the interior trims feel pretty down market. I was not the only person to observe that the interior, despite that new screen, does still feel quite cheap and tacky in places. So Suzuki does have ways of keeping the weight down. But when it comes to the driving experience, it's actually quite a likeable thing. I'd also hasten to add that you have a really nice high driving position, higher than a lot of other small SUVs in this segment, and big windows, thin pillars, so it's really, really easy to see out of, very light and airy on the inside, which also kind of enhances that SUV feel. So as far as driving goes, I was actually quite impressed with the way it performed. Outside of driving, does it actually have any redeeming features that justify the price tag? Look, to be honest with you, it just doesn't justify the price tag, no. Um, you know, it does have some points of difference, like I touched on before. The all-grip all-wheel drive system is quite good. The new infotainment system is a massive improvement for Suzuki. Nine-inch screen at the top of the range, sat-nav, wireless CarPlay, digital radio, 360 camera, but it doesn't do things that a Kia Seltos' screen does, doesn't do. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring anything new to the table. It's good for Suzuki, but it's not necessarily, you know, changing the dynamics of the market. It doesn't have a market leading warranty it doesn't have market leading power or features or safety tech i mean it's well equipped with all of the above it's not lacking features it's not lacking in safety but it doesn't bring any anything to the table that competitor products at a lower price bring so in short i don't really see quite what the usp of it is wongi Oh, well, you already touched on what I was going to ask about, which was the driver assistance stuff, because the old one, despite coming out of the same factory that the European models came out of, didn't have AEB adaptive cruise, which this new one has, which probably forms part of those um, cost increases. So I wanted to ask you, given you've spent some time in the car, whether it gets there's a level of sophistication that would make it competitive with some of those other vehicles that you mentioned in the beginning in terms of tech. Yeah, I mean, sophistication in terms of tech, again, by Suzuki standards, it's certainly right up there. I mean, it's the new infotainment system is quite good. It's got autonomous emergency braking and lane departure warning and blind spot monitoring, cross-traffic alert, active cruise control, all those features that we've come to expect. But again, this is not something the competitor products don't have either. So while it does move the game forward for the brand, that doesn't necessarily mean that it moves the game forward for the segment. Um, and when you consider that Suzuki is charging as much or more as um, as much as or more than Volkswagens and Toyotas and Mazdas that do just the same things with a more convincing sheen of premium kind of overlaid, yeah, it, it, it really does become a little bit of a hard sell. I have to keep coming back on that price point, but unfortunately it really is unavoidable. Hmm. How did you find the performance of it and uh, what size engine is it? Yeah, so 1.4 litre turbo petrol, 103 kilowatts of power, 220 newton metres of torque, six-speed automatic transmission, very simple and basic drivetrain. But, you know, that's one thing Suzuki does well. It it, it reuses the same technology for a very long time. And the, the positive upside of that is reliability. There's not a hell of a lot to go wrong on a car like this. I'd be very com- very confident and comfortable recommending this to somebody who just wanted a reliable vehicle that wasn't going to let them down. Um, plenty of punch on account of that very lightweight. And that all-wheel drive system is quite good. I mean, none of these cars are designed to go hardcore bush bashing. If that's what you want to do, you buy a Suzuki Jimny or a Jeep Wrangler or something like that. But it's certainly capable of navigating, you know, a light-duty trail or, or going down to a beach or doing a snow trip or something along those lines. And there are a lot of competitor products that cannot do that, that really can't go beyond the tarmac. So so it, it does certainly bring that to the table. Now, obviously, it's it's a sort of bigger vehicle in the sense that it's like an SUV but not really an SUV. What's it like in terms of practicality and space inside? Could you use it as a family car? Is it better packaged than something like a Mazda? Um, you could use it as a family car if you've got a couple of small kids. So 4.3 metres long. So it's about the same size as an ASX or a Kia Seltos. Um, so certainly if you've got a couple of small kids, you'd be fine. Uh, what really lets it down is the sunroof 
which comes as standard on the prestige model, which also comes standard with the better infotainment that you don't get on the base grade, really hurts the headroom. So I'm a little taller than average, so perhaps I'm not the most fair person to judge backseat space. But what I will say is headroom in the rear is extremely tight with the sunroof, and that's not just for somebody my height who's, you know, 6'4", that's for really any adult whatsoever. So if you're carrying a couple of kids... By all means, you've got plenty of space. 430-litre boot with a two-level load floor. So it's got a decent-sized boot, certainly a bigger boot than a typical hatchback. So, yeah, it, it certainly could do family duties. I would hesitate, I would, I would sorry, caution to add, though, that it doesn't yet have an ANCAP crash test. The predecessor model did. This new one doesn't. I tend to not recommend somebody buy a family vehicle that hasn't been independently crash tested because... I just want to see how it performs. But in terms of sheer space, uh, as long as you're not too tall, in short, and in terms of how it compares to its competitor models, I wouldn't really say it's any more practical than a Seltos or an ASX, but it's certainly more practical than something like a Toyota CHR, which is a lot more compromised on account of its roofline. So again, like a lot of aspects of this car, it kind of sits middle of the pack. Mm. Marco, can you sum up the car expert rating you gave it of a 7.1? Yeah, look, it was probably a a touch generous and I think a lot of that comes down to our ratings criteria because I gave it a very very low score for value for money Um, it deserved a kicking and it got it but in other areas it's actually pretty much bang on the class average and in some ways slightly above it so overall it ends up getting a 7.1 but value for money uh, if we were to sort of scale or weight that more heavily it would certainly get a lower grade and unfortunately, it's not a vehicle that I can really recommend unless you can have yourself a hell of a deal. I think there are better options out there than this one. That review is at Car Expert now. Thank you, Mike Costello. Always a pleasure. There goes another Car Expert podcast. So, J-Wo, what have we got coming up in the garage next week? Uh, in the garage, we've got a Lexus LX 600 Ultra Luxury, so it's that really cool four-seat, um, you know, Maybachy style one that uh, we've got coming through. We've got two plug-in hybrid Cupras, so we've got the Leon VZ, VZE and the Formentor VZE, which will be cool to have, um, as well as the Skoda Carox style, so the entry-level 110-kilowatt front-wheel drive version of Skoda's popular crossover. Uh, we've got a Bentley Bentayga S coming in Melbourne, uh, and then up in Brisbane, uh, Albors will be, he's got a few cars, as uh, we've got an i20N, a Nissan Z Coupe, and an Audi A3 Sportback 35 TFSI. Where's the team off to as well? Yeah, so um, our resident uh, American aficionado, William Stopford, is actually in Detroit now with Ford to go to the all-new Mustang reveal. So I oh, imagine he'll be- loving that. He would be absolutely chuffed to do that, y'all. Um, and Tony Crawford <laughs> is coming. Tony Crawford's coming down to Phillip Island to test out the new Toyota GR86, which is, um, I'm sure, for all the fans of that nameplate, will be very excited to hear um, his thoughts. Uh, Crawford will also be flying out to Canada this coming weekend to um, test out the extended wheelbase Bentley Bentayga, which is a bit of a change from the GR86, but so he'll have two very different reviews coming shortly. Uh, James, I'm just thinking as well that um, the 86 Toyota at a racetrack is probably just enough power for Tony as well. Yeah, you wouldn't want to get his pacemaker off uh, off beat, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, as always, if you would like any questions answered or if you have any feedback for us, we're always open to it, podcast at carexpert.com.au and make sure to give us a rating just after you finish listening to this. It'd be great. Paul Marrick and James Wong, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy.